Welcome to the Quantum Biology Collective Podcast, where we break down the practical strategies of this emerging science, starting with healthy light habits and going wherever the quantum superhighway takes us. This is your host, Meredith Oak, and we'd also love to hear from you. Visit www.quantumbiologycollective.org and click QBC Newsletter to join the conversation. In a world where the New York Times publishes articles with titles like How to Get Absolutely No Sun This Summer, and dermatologists promote the idea that there is no such thing as a safe tan, it's not surprising that many of us have conflicted and misguided ideas about the true nature of the relationship between sunlight and humans. In this episode, return guest and integrative physician Dr. Leland Stillman breaks the myths of sun exposure, explaining the deep connection between sunlight and human biology, and explaining to us why we absolutely need to get some sun and how to do it safely. If you've got a sun skeptic in your life, this is the episode to share. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome, Dr. Leland Stillman. It is wonderful to have you back on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, the Dr. Leland Stillman is, uh, can I embarrass you a little? Go ahead. Say that, <laughs> what did Dr. Marcola say? You were one of the best integrative physicians in the United States. Is that correct? <laughs> he did say that. He did. Jim told me that. So I mm-hmm. thought I'd, I thought I'd pull that out and embarrass you just a little, but I also I wanted to it. give some context because we're going to be talking about a rather controversial subject. Mm. So, um, I mean, I guess Dr. Marcola himself is kind of controversial, but just to say that you are a very well-recognized, well-respected physician who went to medical school and did all of the, all of the normal regular things, plus a Mm -hmm. whole bunch of other weird things. So tell us some of the stuff that you layered on, on top of your traditional medical training, just to set the stage before we dive in to our topic today. Yeah. So I um, was always already interested in integrative medicine when I went to medical school. I was determined to become, at an earlier age, I thought I wanted to be a naturopath or uh, something like a naturopath. I wasn't exactly sure, but my naturopath mentor encouraged me to go to medical school, which was both, um, well, it was very, it set me up for what I do now, but it also was very miserable being in conventional medicine when I really didn't like the way that we were being trained to think about Mm -hmm. health and wellness because it doesn't work. I mean, the modern medical paradigm is obviously failing um, because it's really been hijacked by the wrong people whose thinking is skin deep, pun intended. And Mm -hmm. when I went through my medical training, I went through understanding that there were limitations to the paradigm that I was being taught. And I knew that I wanted to do something different and I just tried to get the value out of it that I could. Then after medical school, I went and did a conventional internal medicine residency. Then after the residency, I went to work in a functional medicine clinic in Tampa, Florida, worked there for a couple of months, decided it was not for me, moved on and became a traveling doctor and spent the next few years studying integrative natural holistic medicine. But I specifically fell down uh, sort of the rabbit hole of quantum biology, quantum medicine, and found that even though there was a strong culture and many schools of integrative medicine in the United States, they had no idea what was going on on a fundamental level with life and light and energy. Mm-hmm. And they lacked a basic understanding of how uh light, sound, electromagnetic radiations, and frequencies interact with life. They were obsessed with supplements. They were obsessed with um, nutrition, diets. There's obviously a place for that. It's very important, but it's also missing a key component of the picture. So I, I went through and really just read on my own because there was no one to learn from. There wasn't a quantum biology collective at the time for me to take courses with. And so I had to um, figure it out so to speak. And there are a lot of people now in this space and there were fewer then, but very loud people spreading a lot of information that was very controversial, but was in and of itself uh, missing a lot of information that I found very helpful to patients. 
So now I've really blended my conventional medical background with, you know, the best of functional medicine, integrative medicine, nutrition, biochemistry, um, you know, plus the quantum biological perspective, which is why, you know, people like Joe Mercola are interviewing me and you obviously. Yes. Yeah. And it's a, at the, at this moment in time, that is a very unique combination. Um, I think we're both committed to making it less unique and more available to more people through, through their practitioners. But at the moment it's pretty unique. And what I, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about people and practitioners who've studied quantum biology is that they tend to be fairly dogma free. You know, it's, it's, it's a language for understanding more so than a, you know, a set of, of rigid systems that people need to adhere by. That being said, once you understand the body through the quantum biologic lens, there are certain things that are very clear. And that's what I want to focus on today, because one of the things that becomes very clear is the absolute importance of sunlight to the human system. And this goes against everything that we've been taught and been made to believe, especially as parents, um, in terms of how we feel about the sun. So I want to today in this podcast cover that topic, and I'd like to talk about the basically infinite health benefits of the sun and then how to get sun safely um, and what it means to uh, have a life that includes a lot of natural sunlight, but it also be mindful of potential harms, even if those harms have been somewhat exaggerated. So let's start with the, with the benefits of sunlight. Inherent to understanding the benefits of sunlight is you have to understand our relationship to the sun. The sun uh, delivers a broad spectrum of light to the earth of which only a segment is is actually going to reach the earth's surface. That segment runs from the infrared spectrum and infrared is what you perceive as heat. So when you feel the sun on your face and it's warm, that's infrared light. So it's infrared light up through ultraviolet type B light. Ultraviolet type C and above is blocked by the atmosphere. There are microwave and radio wave radiations that arrive to earth from space, but they're present in virtually non-existent quantities. That's part of why we have microwave and radio wave telescopes uh, that allow us to look at and study these emissions from the universe. Uh, All of that right there is extremely, extremely important. All of life on earth has adapted to use every part of that window of light to accomplish something. And this is where people tend to get confused when it comes to the health benefits versus risks of light. Because what they see is, oh, we illuminate the cell with ultraviolet type light and we cause DNA damage or we cause lipid peroxidation or we cause inflammation. Therefore, that light is bad. But you have to understand that one of the biggest mistakes and limitations of modern molecular cellular biology is this um, disconnect between what happens in the test tube or the cell culture in the lab and what happens in the animal, human, patient in nature, right? So the frequencies of light that we're using, I'll run you through basically the, the fundamentals of how they affect cells and energy within cells. So the infrared and red portions of the spectrum are very well known to improve cellular function and energy generation. And that's known as photobiomodulation or low-level laser therapy. That's been uh, a subject of research since the 1960s with a guy named Andre Mester first realized that red light can regrow hair. He was trying to figure out how light could cause skin cancer. But then he noticed that the animals that were irradiated with red light actually had their hair grow back faster. Fast forward 50 or 60 years, and all of a sudden you're going to see ads on television for or in social media, wherever, for caps that emit red light that will help you regrow your hair. This is how far right modern tech is or devices are behind um, 
the medical literature on this. So red and infrared light help bioenergetics. They help the cell to um, to uh, grow, to heal. We use them for tons of different medical interventions now in medicine and dentistry. The visible portion of light or the electromagnetic spectrum, the greens and the blues in particular are what wake us up. And that's why people can scroll forever through their phone at night without getting seemingly tired. You're basically telling your brain that it's daytime. Because in nature, there's really no red light and above red, green, blue, you know, anything in there after sunset. Infrared light is present in the environment after sunset because it's retained by the environment. That's why it's colder in the morning when you wake up, the earth's cooled off than it was when you went to bed. That's why if you're out okay. in the desert and you put your hand on a stone that's been heated by the whole day's sun, you're going to notice that it's still warm, right? So infrared light is not a good marker for sunlight or rather for, for the day-night cycle. Your body needs a day-night cycle for reasons you talked about in your episode with Dr. What was his name? Voorhees? Uh, Martin Moreed. Yeah. Moreed. Excuse me. Yeah. And so I won't get into that, but basically you need a circadian rhythm and that's what blue okay. and green light do. Yes. And all life on earth really times circadian rhythms. And that's, you know, for, for diurnal mammals that are awake during the day and asleep at night, we use it to wake up. Nocturnal mammals have a completely opposite system, right? Where they're wired to wake up when the blues and greens go away and they're wired to go to sleep or rest when those are present, right? So that's how the body knows what time it's supposed to be. The UV spectrum has very powerful effects on our um, neurotransmitters and hormones. And a lot of that research has been forgotten. And a lot of it is ignored by doctors to this day. And this is where really things became somewhat, um, confused because okay. there's obvious benefit to some of the hormones and, and neurotransmitters that are triggered or modulated by UVA and UVB, right? UVB mm -hmm. makes vitamin D in your skin. Vitamin D levels are associated with uh, better health, uh, lower all-cause mortality, lower cancer death rates. Um, but one of the things you'll find in the literature is that you can't just give people who have low vitamin D, vitamin D supplements and normalize their risk for death. In other words, right. there's something about how the sun makes vitamin D in our skin that gives us extra benefit that's not just something you can put in a pill. Right. So that's the difference. So just, right? Okay. Yeah. So just to clarify, there's the circadian aspect mm -hmm. where the light frequencies change and then go into the darkness. And that sets our circadian rhythms, which mm -hmm. are foundational to every process in our body. But then in addition to that, uh, in addition to setting the circadian rhythm, the UVA and the UVB have many other health benefits. So being Correct. outside in that light is lowering all-cause mortality. Is that what you're saying? Like it's, is it- Well, let's talk about why people our got- life expectancy? Well, let's talk about why people got confused about this in the first place. Okay. The conclusion that people draw based on a lot of cell culture uh, data and biochemical experiments is light can create inflammation and disease, right? But saying that light can create a problem in a test tube or a cell culture is not the same as saying that going outside and getting sunlight is bad for you. Um, what matters is basically clinical endpoints that patients care about. You don't actually care if you get a small basal cell carcinoma anywhere near as much as you care as if you get a stroke or a solid organ cancer or a blood cancer like uh, uh, leukemia or a dementia, or you gain 20 pounds, right? Right. And so the real question you have to ask is, what's the risk benefit profile for getting full spectrum sunlight at different seasons of the year and in different latitudes? And what happened was the people looking at this data in the lab and the dermatologist said, oh, we can basically reduce the risk of skin cancer significantly if people don't go outside and get sun. But even in that statement, there are caveats because if you read the dermatological literature closely, you'll notice that the dermatologists are very clear 
that intermittent sun exposure increases your risk of skin cancer, but consistent sun exposure does not. What's the difference? The difference is an electrical line worker, a yard worker, a farm worker goes out and gets the same light every day, day after day, five, six days a week. Whereas an office worker who goes outside for an hour on a Saturday and falls asleep in his deck chair gets a sunburn because he didn't get consistent sun over the course of the week. So intermittent sun exposure is inconsistent sun exposure. Consistent okay. sun exposure, you don't actually see that increased risk, particularly in melanoma. And this goes back to what are you really worried about? So basal cell and squamous cell carcinomas are very easily excised or burned off of the body. They, If they're caught early, they don't cause huge defects in your your aesthetic or your cosmetic appearance, which is what people mostly care about. Melanomas, when they're caught early, have a 93, 96% survival rate. When they're caught late, the levels or numbers drop. But what people really need to realize about this is that 12,000 people in round numbers a year, and it fluctuates a fair bit and it's going up, die of skin cancer in the United States. What's important is to put that into perspective. Three point something million people a year die in the United States. Uh, so you have many, many, many more people dying in the United States than are dying of skin cancer. Skin cancer is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of, of actual mortality. Every disease that people are dying of in huge numbers, hundreds of thousands for cardiovascular disease, hundreds of thousands for cancer, over 100,000 for stroke, over 100,000 for respiratory illnesses, and on and on and on are associated with low vitamin D levels. What is vitamin D fundamentally? It is a marker of how much fish you eat and how much sun you get. But I will tell you that sun exposure dwarfs, particularly in the average American, the contributions of fish to your vitamin D level. And so there's no question that when you look at sun exposure, the benefits of sun exposure to your health far outweigh the risks because the risk of skin cancer and death from skin cancer is very small. But the risk right. of diseases or, or death by diseases that are associated with a lack of sun exposure and a low vitamin D level, these account for the vast majority of deaths. I mean, the whole, the top 10 ca causes of death by the CDC every year, no matter what they are, they are all associated with a lack of sunlight and a lack of vitamin D. And this is the difference between looking at all cause mortality data and looking at damage or cytotoxicity or DNA damage or whatever in a cell culture or a biochemical experiment. And this is where people have gotten confused. They think right. sun exposure equals skin damage equals skin cancer, and I should be afraid of skin cancer. But the truth is more people are going to die this year of automobile accidents than skin cancer. You know, you're not going to go out and sell your car because you're worried about automobile accidents and take your bicycle to work or the public transportation, the bus, the subway, whatever. Um, people don't have that perspective because it hasn't been... Uh, the, the dermatologists have been very simplistic in their thinking yes. about this. They say these stupid, ridiculous things like, um, there's no such thing as a safe tan. Well, hang on a minute. When we look at the literature, we know, and this is from the melanoma in Southern Sweden trial, which was a study that tried to look at what were the determinants of melanoma risk and then outcome. And what they found that was surprising is that avoiding the sun was a risk factor for death that was equivalent to smoking. Huh. And they didn't expect to find that. So when someone no says, kidding. aren't you worried? <laughs> I know, aren't you worried about getting a sun a sunburn? This would be like them saying, aren't you worried that if you don't smoke a pack a day, you're going to gain weight? Technically, right. smoking is a great strategy for uh, preventing weight gain and even weight loss. Right. Uh, but that doesn't mean that smoking is a healthy habit, right? Right. So we have to be understanding our biology here. We're wired for sunlight. We're wired to use those frequencies. What we're not wired for is to go work in a office with zero UV light for 16 hours a day, go home to an indoor environment with artificial light, go to sleep, have horrible melatonin levels, uh, terrible sleep scores, and then go on vacation to Cancun, which is 5, 10, 20 degrees of latitude south of where you live most of the time, get drunk at 11 o'clock, pass that on the beach, and roast until you look like a lobster for two or three hours. That's why skin cancer rates are going up. 
that and as well as other factors in the environment that I don't think the dermatologists appreciate at all. Um, but the problem is not the sun. And this is why I say to people that saying that the sun causes skin cancer is a little bit like saying spoons make people fat. <laughs> it's not a fair comparison. So we've taken a small potential risk inherent in sun exposure if you do it badly. And we have made that a reason to either avoid the sun completely or to be wearing uh, a high SPF sunscreen every minute that we're outside. Correct. When in fact, the health benefits of allowing that direct sunlight to penetrate our skin without any barrier far outweigh the risks. And this is clear in the literature. That's correct. Okay. So I, I find this interesting because this is a really tough pill to swallow. I just did um, an orientation with our new, with our newest intake. And I added a slide where I put on a spectrum of how mad people are going to get at you when you give them new information they haven't heard before. Mm -hmm. um, and like on the safe end is the circadian rhythm stuff. There's like mm -hmm. a lot of research, especially in the last few right. years. On the like, what the hell are you talking about? End is the quantum biology. No one understands that. Mm -hmm. And then in the guaranteed to make people really get mad at you is <laughs> tell them they not to wear sunscreen or sunglasses and they will freak right. out. Right. So this triggers a lot of people because we've really been told and that we're putting ourselves and our children at risk if we don't, if we don't cover them up from the sun. And mm. so could we just like, can we just like list the things that it's the things that the sun is doing? So there's the vitamin sure. D there's the circadian rhythm. There's like, there's so right. much happening. Right. Just so in, in layperson's terms, like, why is this good for me? Let's start with the, the low end of the electromagnetic spectrum. So the near infrared light that the sun is giving you that infrared light is helping to improve cellular bioenergetics. That's a fancy way of saying that red and infrared light help yourself function better. It's as simple as that. It doesn't need to be any more complicated. It doesn't matter what the cell is, where it is in your body, what it needs or doesn't have nutritionally. It doesn't matter you know, what stage of life that cell is in. Virtually any cell line, virtually any cell in the body gets better when you illuminate it with red and infrared light. Now that you know, there's a lot more to that on an academic right. level, but this is part of why people uniformly feel better when they're in the, out in the sun, because 42% of sunlight is infrared light. You don't perceive that because your eye isn't telling you, oh, you know, you're getting 42% infrared light. Your eye doesn't perceive infrared light, but it's there. So that's fundamentally what's happening when you're out in the sun and you need that that light will penetrate if i recall correctly don't quote me on this 20 millimeters into the human body and that means that you know st structures deep within your skin even beneath your skin at certain areas are being illuminated by that light uh, if you look at the structure of the brain for example you'll find that it's set up to funnel infrared light to its deepest recesses and mm -hmm. if you consider the fact that your mitochondria, really your mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of the cell, what do they fundamentally do? They turn food into CO2 and water and the byproduct of that. And, and it's funny because people will say that, you know, um, CO2 is like a byproduct of metabolism. I look at, you could also look at H2O and CO2 as being the byproduct of light production in the mitochondria. And the mitochondria are producing infrared light and red light. And that's why you produce infrared light. That's why you're a mammal that's warm-blooded. And that light is essential to cellular function. That's why the lower your mitochondrial density, the sicker your mitochondria are. Overall, the more diseases you have and the older you are. And that's why when you look at therapeutics, whether you're talking about vitamin C, vitamin E, B vitamins, they all function fundamentally on the level of the mitochondria. There are many other pathways they affect, but they all have unique interactions with the mitochondria. And that's part of why they're so powerful. So that's red and infrared light. 
And that's why when you look at the data, the sun reduces all cause mortality. The more sun you get, the lower your risk of death. For the record, no one that I know of has produced a study where they show that too much sun increases your risk of death. And to take this, if if people get upset with you for sharing this information with them and start asking you for like the fact checking of this or whatever, just turn it around on them and say, hey, listen, can you produce one study showing to me that sunglasses reduce reduce the risk of death or stroke or cancer or that they don't increase the risk of say psychiatric illness? Because what happens when you put sunglasses over your eye is you're reducing the amount of light that reaches the retina. What happens when right light reaches the retina is that it generates an electrical signal that goes into the rest of the brain. And you've been told that the retina is wired into your occipital cortex where your camera vision is processed. But the truth is that your retina is wired into, into almost half of your brain because it's also inputting data there to time things like circadian rhythms. So your retina really is an integral part of your central nervous system. And so when you're reducing the amount of signal, you're effectively telling your body that it's incredibly dark outside. You may be blocking 95, 97% of the light that would be reaching your eye. What your eye then must think logically is it's winter, it's dark, we're in the middle of an ice age. Maybe we should go to sleep so we don't burn so many calories. Or maybe we should go to sleep so that we can rest and be ready for when the light comes back. Because what happens in nature when the light comes back, i.e. summer shows up, i.e. the you know ice age you just lived through ends, is what happens? Nature wakes up. Food becomes abundant. Food becomes available. And it makes sense to be more active and to forage for food and to farm. And to you know this is why people in northern latitudes are very active in the summer. It's almost a frenzy of activity if you go to northern Sweden, northern Finland, Norway, these and Canada. These people know intrinsically that they have to do all this work in the middle of the summer because if they don't do it now, they're going to freeze to death or starve to death in the winter. So that's what the visible spectrum of the light is doing. I kind of switched there from the infrared to the and and red to the the visible spectrum, but that visible spectrum is timing your circadian rhythms and basically turning your brain on. And the earliest studies we have of this are still some of the best ones that we have where they show that urinary levels of hormones and neurotransmitters are meaningfully impacted by the influence of light on the retina. And there's, I mean, I just saw a paper on this the other month. These doctors are proposing that sunglasses may be responsible for a lot of the psychiatric problems that we see in our modern world. And this makes sense. I mean, doctors mm-hmm. are are aware of seasonal affective disorder. What is seasonal affective disorder? It's a disorder characterized by low mood and you know, call it depression, call it whatever you want, in the winter months, which are dark when there is a lack of sunlight. So are you mimicking seasonal affective disorder by wearing sunglasses in the middle of the summer? I would say yes. So you look at sunglasses and people say, oh, well, of course I want to wear sunglasses because I want to block UV light from giving me, you know, crow's feet or wrinkles around my eyes. I don't want to get skin cancer around my eyes. Fair enough. But what if wearing sunglasses increases your risk of depression? What if it increases your risk of anxiety? What if it actually cuts your life short because it's impacting levels of hormones and neurotransmitters that are associated with longevity and vitality? Those are the kinds of questions that I ask patients. And I'll tell you that anecdotally, having recommended that many people put their sunglasses on the shelf and leave them there, uh, they see very significant changes in how they feel, how they function. You'll see changes in their autoimmune illnesses, allergies, many more just by not wearing sunglasses because of these incredibly powerful effects that it's having on the brain through the retina. It's just incredible. And I've, I've started to notice how addicted people are to their sunglasses because it's sometimes people socially ask me some questions and I casually answer. Mm. And the idea, whenever it comes up that like, you know, maybe, maybe don't wear sunglasses all the time. A very common answer is, oh, but I have to, I can't, the light is too bright. I can't take it. And it's right. like the minute they're outside, the sunglasses are on, are on. Mm. Um, and they almost feel like they're no longer able to be outside without them. Well, this is a really important element that I find in my practice is incredibly important. And that's that you can't separate the energy and the matter in our world 
So when, and this is what I come back to a lot of the time when I think about how, how diseases begin. So Einstein created this equation, general relativity E equals MC squared, right? Mm -hmm. Energy and light and energy are interrelated. Energy and matter are interrelated. And what you'll find in the literature is that the signals you send your body in terms of light, sound, electromagnetic radiations, they will change how your body handles matter. And likewise, the matter that you put into your body or on your body is going to change your relationship with light. So, you know, if you look at the foods that grow in a very brightly lit environment, they tend to be rich in pigments that interact with light. So think about your sweet potatoes, carrots, colorful fruits and vegetables. They have tons and tons of colorful compounds. Those colorful compounds are antioxidants. They help neutralize oxidative stress that can be created by light. Uh, likewise, folate is abundant in green leafy vegetables and legumes and lentils. Folate is degraded by ultraviolet light and blue light, so much so that when you give a patient IV folate in the hospital, you hang it in a bag that's brown so that it blocks that light so it doesn't degrade the folate before it's been infused into the patient. So you see all these patterns in nature where, you know, you need more folate in the summer, probably because you're doing more things, you're more active, you're sleeping less, uh, you, the sun may be degrading a lot of it in your skin, although that's something we haven't really tested yet, to be honest with you. Um, you start to see all these associations in nature and you can't help but think there's got to be a rhyme and a reason to this. It can't all just be happenstance. So this is why I'm focusing with patients on you need to eat at least somewhat a local seasonal diet because if you're eating this you know, diet that's totally disconnected from your current environment, that can't be a good thing long-term. It may be a useful short-term strategy for a variety of reasons, but no civilization on planet Earth has ever done that and you know, survived for right. obvious reasons. Um, and I joke with people that we're the only animal on planet earth that eats a non-local, non-seasonal diet and then argues about what we should eat. The other element of that is that we don't have the same food supply now that we did 50, 60, 100, 200 years ago. Modern overbred foods are not the same nutritionally. Our soils are not the same nutritionally. They've been terribly contaminated by pesticides heavy metals, industrial chemicals, you name it. And then we're also exposed to these in our environment. Um, and we are changing some of these things very um, significantly um, with modern medications. Like there's medications that have got lots of, you know, uh, that have, have heavy metals in them. There are medications that have got tons of fluoride, which competes with iodine. There are medications like birth control that alter how the body uses and absorbs things like copper, iron, zinc. So, we're not eating the same food we were. We're not under the same light we were under. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if you kind of reverse engineer what's good for people, it's something very close to the state of nature that we're obviously adapted to. Um, and that any deviation from that can create a decline in fitness and overall health. And this brings me back to the ultraviolet light. You know, people are not going to do well with strong doses of ultraviolet light when not only are they not getting any UV light on a regular basis to have a tan that will allow them to um, not burn, right? But they're not going to adapt to it well if they're not eating antioxidants, if they're not eating, you know, foods that are rich in the, say, minerals that then produce a lot of the colored pigments that we see, you know, in human cells. So all of this is a very, it's very complex. I mean, the complexity is beautiful. I think the complexity scares a lot of people, but it doesn't have to be complex. At the end of the day, it's relatively simple. Um, you're adapted for sunlight and that's why the more you get, the lower your risk of death. And right. with sunburn, the big thing is that you've got to avoid getting sunburned uh, because sunburn is a marker or a sign that your body can't accommodate the amount of energy you're being exposed to. A lot of that is not only a product of our indoor lifestyles, but also a product of the fact that we've migrated all over the world in really unprecedented ways. I mean, people who are pale or light-skinned, they are restricted historically to northern latitudes. You know, they had very little sunlight compared to people in tropical latitudes, and so they had to make the most of it. 
Uh, and so that's why they have light skin. Uh, likewise, I think a lot of modern issues in people or health issues in people who've got dark skin, I think those people are set up or potentially need more sunlight than people who've got light or pale skin, which may be why some of those minorities who have darker skin pigmentation have worse health statistics in our modern indoor artificially lit world. Uh, but sadly, the people who are interested in this are not uh, doing the kind of studies that would need to be done in order to understand exactly what contribution artificial light and a lack of sunlight are making to those health statistics. Right. So everything is uh, plays its role in sending a signal to our body that it's in terms of how to have enough energy and how to function optimally, right. our when food, to be awake, our light, when to be asleep, all of it. Right. Okay. So, um, okay. So if getting sunlight is essential to our health, let's just, uh, sort of recap how to do that safely. Um, cause I was noticing, uh, you know, I spent, I spent the summer near a lake, right. And I the children were swimming all the time. They were paddleboarding. They were on little sailboats. They were in little kayaks. They were jumping around in the water. And then I happened to randomly hear a statistic that like drowning is, um, you know, a, one of the top causes of childhood death. And I'm like, sure. but the parents on the beach were not thinking about that. Right. Because mm -hmm. we had lifeguards, we taught our children how to swim. So we knew if they fell in the water, they wouldn't drown. Right. They, they could swim when they, you know, they wore life jackets when they were out, out on the open water. We took all of these precautions, you know, and then we were, you know, vigilant. There were, there were people watching them, right? But we took all of these precautions. And so you can allow your child to enjoy the benefits of swimming without being totally focused on the fact that it's possible they could drown. When it comes to sun, we're like completely focused on keeping them covered up in sunscreen all the time. And so I'm thinking if we had an understanding of how to be safe in the sun, the way we have an understanding of how to be safe in the water, perhaps we could alleviate a little bit of this fear because right now it's all or nothing, right? It's like, if, if me or my child is out in broad daylight, they have to have some kind of protection from the sun, otherwise danger, right? <laughs> Unspecified bad danger now or in the future. So, so one what of the, are, so how do yeah. we, how do we spend time in the sun, um, minimizing the danger and maximizing the, the benefits? One thing you mentioned is to do it consistently. What are some right. ways? So consistent sun exposure is not linked to an increased risk of melanoma. Uh, the other thing is to, um, be mindful never to burn which is a matter of knowing your skin type and knowing your skin sensitivity and also getting that consistent sun exposure. Uh, when it comes to, because the simple fact of it is that a lot of us, you know, myself included, we spend a lot of time in latitudes that our ancestors did not ever see. And so we're exposed to, to concentrations or intensities of UV light that our skin is fundamentally not adapted for. So you have to ask the question, how do I compensate for or mitigate what is going to be excessive stress if I'm not careful? You need to be prepared to protect your skin from excessive solar energy. And the best way to do that is actually by covering up, in my opinion, and then by using zinc oxide sunscreen. I like this company called Badger. They make a lot of different skincare products, but they have a zinc oxide sunscreen Zinc oxide is one of the oldest sunscreens and people don't like it because it makes you look a little bit like a ghost. It doesn't rub in well. It doesn't blend with your skin. Um, but the reality is this, the sunscreen industry took off with a good idea, which is to give people protection from UV light that they can't possibly absorb and assimilate. And they turned it into a, uh, a biochemical disaster. Because they basically said, okay, any chemical that can block ultraviolet light is fair game to be a sunscreen. But if you look at the breakdown products of these chemicals, if you look at the things they're derived from, if you look at how they interact with your skin cells, sunscreens may be contributing to risk of skin cancer because many of them are, are toxic by nature. And zinc oxide is not, which is why it's one of the only ones that I'm open to using. 
So people need to be aware of that. The sunscreen industry, they're selling you a product that's going to prevent you from getting burned. They're not selling you a product that has been proven to reduce your risk of skin cancer, let alone death. So in this modern world where, and that's just the skin, you know, the, the sunscreens themselves, forget about the additives and fillers and different chemicals that are added to the sunscreen lotion in order to make it, you know, slide on just the right way or rub in just the right way, or, you know, not wash off out of the bottle. (laughs) Right. Or, or, or not wash off when you go for a swim. Hmm. And that's one reason why I like covering up more than I like putting on sunscreen. And that's my recipe or my strategy for avoiding sunburn and avoiding an excess of, of, uh, UV light that I can't cope with. Um, and you know, I think that people need to get into a mindset of, you know, how do I know that what I'm doing is not just preventing a short-term problem, but is actually contributing to my long-term wellness using sunscreen undoubtedly prevents a short-term problem of, of, uh, sunburn, but using sunscreen, using sunglasses, nobody's ever studied these interventions for reducing your actual risk of death. And in fact, if you consider the fact that only about 12,000 people die a year of skin cancer in the United States, how many cases of skin cancer or how many people do you have to slather up with sunscreen every single year, decade after decade after decade in order to prevent one death? The amount of energy and money going into sunscreen is actually amazing when you step back and think about how few deaths it's actually preventing because the vast majority of skin cancer deaths are prevented by early detection in the skin of a lesion that could get bigger and then metastasize and take over the whole body, which is why I actually started recommending to patients that they get a skin cancer check particularly if they have sensitive skin, they're fair skinned like me, they've had a lot of sunburns. I've had a ton of sunburns, partly because when I learned this information, I didn't have a balanced um, voice in the health and wellness info space that was telling me, yes, all these things that I just shared, Mm -hmm. right? And so I just went out and I got as much sun as I wanted. I didn't really worry about sunburns. Uh, and I, you know, now I'm 35. I get my son, my skin checks every six months or a year because I did actually have a melanocytic nevus that you can see the the scar from having oh, it excised yeah. from a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, I practice what I preach, but I'm also really clear with people, you know, it's not like skin cancer is not a problem. And the key thing to understand is you've got to ask questions. What benefit is this actually giving me? You know, the benefit right. of sun exposure is a reduction in your risk of death. Right. The benefit of using sunscreen is not getting sunburned. And if you use it to prevent sunburn and facilitate intermittent, or I should say consistent sun exposure so that you can have a what I would call a healthy tan, because how can you get consistent sun exposure without having a healthy tan? It's not possible. That's why when right. the dermatologists say there's no such thing as a healthy tan, they're totally missing the forest through the trees. Their thinking is only skin deep. You need to to ask the question, is setting this patient out in the sun going to reduce their risk of death? Because that's more important than whether or not they get skin cancer. And if you're one of those people who would rather die young and have perfect skin, knock yourself out. But you got to understand you're making that choice with full knowledge of the fact that the sun prolongs, statistically speaking, your life. Right. So the sun is essentially health giving. And also mm-hmm. you can't get sunburned at the whole all day long, right? Like there's only a certain window. Well, that's the other element. You're gonna get sunburned. So if you're outside people, in the morning, right. you're outside at sunset, like right. you don't even need to think about it. Right. So people need to understand. And how is that you part do... of the sorry, is that part of the consistency too? Like being 100%. outside all day yes. long as opposed to just yes. at peak so, times. We know that red and infrared light help the skin to heal and also to prepare for the stress of ultraviolet light. And this goes back to the dynamics of light in the environment. So uh, the presence of UV light depends upon the latitude that you're at. If you are on the equator, you get a consistent photo period. Almost every day is 12 hours. There's very little variation and you've always got a high UV index. If you live in Barrow, Alaska, which is north of the Arctic Circle, you get very little ultraviolet light for only a very small segment of the year or season. 
And so, and that's because of how much atmosphere the light has to, has to traverse in order to get to the surface of the earth, which has to do with how the earth tilts on its axis and rotates around the sun. So, you know, people in Minnesota who, you know, go to Cancun in January are set up to have sunburn, right? Because there's zero UV light reaching Minnesota in January. And as, and this goes back to why you've got to be consistent, because if you're getting out there consistently at the same time every day for the same amount of time, your body is going to tan unless caveat, you have very, very fair skin. I do have some patients who really, no matter what they do, they're always susceptible to burning. I joke with them that they, you know, if they walk outside on a sunny day in Florida, then they're going to burst into flames and they know who they are. And they know that they know this about themselves. Um, so UV light, uh, doesn't show up at the same time of day in the same places. It's always strong on the equator and it always shows up for pretty much the majority of the day. But the further you go from the equator, the, the less UV light you get in the summer and the shorter the window that you get it in. So summer in a Northern climate, Northern latitude, like Maine, Minnesota, Washington, you're getting UV light from, you know, early call it mid morning to mid late afternoon. Right. But you've got huge segments of time for much of the year where there's no UV light. You know, if you're in Maine in September, uh, let's call it late September, October, when the days are starting to get short, uh, there may actually be no UV light left, even though it's very sunny and even warm outside. Uh, you take that into the middle of the summer or the tail ends of the summer, you're going to have less and less UV light in the morning and evening hours. And those are the morning and evening hours are the best times for you to A, be setting your circadian rhythms and B, to be getting that red and infrared light on the skin that will help precondition it or help it prepare for that ultraviolet light insult in the middle of the day. And then also to heal from that at the end of the day. And that's why getting morning light, getting evening light is really key, I think, for overall health and longevity. Hmm. So interesting. So we really did evolve to be outside consistently throughout the day. Like the, the early morning light sets our circadian rhythms and right. preconditions our skin. So that when, if we are out at noon, um, our skin is not as, we're not as uh, vulnerable to that harsh light because we've got some morning light and then the evening light kind of helps to soothe and wrap everything up. Your body is exquisitely adapted to these stresses. Yes. Okay. And so on the, just to cover the sunburn prevention strategies. So I've experimented with a lot of these. I've had some missteps as mm -hmm. have you, um, partly from going places where, that I wasn't used to, right? Like we went to Florida right. in August and I previously to that had only ever gone that far South in the winter. Cause I'm from mm -hmm. up North and yeah. I would only travel far South in the winter months. And so the beach in Florida in August was a whole different beast than what <laughs> I was used to on the beach right. in Florida. And so we, we got pretty badly burned and that was bad. Another time we got pretty badly burned was, uh, we went, we were at a very high altitude in the Alps, mm -hmm. uh, and we needed a lot more sunscreen than we realized right? due to the high altitude. So the higher so, you are yeah. and the closer you are to the equator, the more UV light you're going to be exposed to. And you have to keep that in mind because you may not feel like you're burning at, you know, 12,000 feet mm -hmm. in Colorado because it's only 50 degrees yeah. outside, but you get back and you have absolutely roasted the skin on your face. So people need to be aware of that. And that's why, you know, you, what I tell people is, well, first of all, Wearing a hat is actually never really the wrong answer if you have pale skin. Uh, because the thing about light is that there is sort of a law of diminishing returns here. Uh, we don't see people, and no one's established where this is in like a scientific way. They've never said, okay, well, you know, we had this group of people over here wear hats every day, and we had this group of people over here not wear hats every day, <laughs> and there was no difference in mortality, right? Modern public health experts, scientists are not doing studies like this because they don't think about these problems, right? Uh, but they are actually very relevant. You know, when you think about things like sunscreen, hats, we use these things every single day without thinking about it. 
And for all we know, you know, there's actual um, data that would change our decision making about them if we had it. But the point is, for me, wearing a hat if you have pale, sensitive skin is never the wrong answer because the amount of sun that's and light that's actually hitting your face is still significant. So it's not like it's it's not the same as living in a very dim, artificially lit building, which is one of the big problems that people are running into today. Um, okay. Yeah, and then okay. using that more and more at higher altitudes or in higher solar or higher light environments, like for example. Um, the, the Inuit and the Eskimo actually innovated, uh, the first eyewear that was meant to limit sunlight coming into the eye. They would take walrus tusks and they would, um, create these eyewear, protective eyewear that would, these slits, they mm-hmm. could just see through slits because it limited the amount of light coming into the eye. Because if you are in such a light and env- light environment that everything is being reflected back at you, like the Arctic tundra, it can cause what we call snow blindness. So there's right. still a role for having ski goggles, sunglasses, hats, in these environments where there's a lot of light hitting your eye, the same thing's fair to be said of uh, the sea, you know? Right. So if you think about pale skin so out on the water, out on right. the snow, those would right. be times. Right. And to you wear know, protective pa- eyewear. Okay. So I'm just going to recap. So safe sun strategies is go outside at all times of day, not just in the super hot times. Mm-hmm. Yes. If you feel yourself starting to burn, go in the shade or cover up. Yes. Or uh, put on a a barrier cream like a zinc, Mm -hmm. but not not a chemical based SPF sunscreen. Correct. So we want to just be actually making a physical barrier as opposed to putting chemicals on our skin. Okay. Well, it's not just a physical barrier. It's specifically the zinc oxide. Okay. All right. So zinc oxide, um, or cover up or go in, or go in the shade. Correct. So all of this, but all of this comes back to very simple principles, which is you need to understand what your skin can accommodate, and then you need to protect it from excessive amounts of energy that will cause skin damage and set you up for skin cancer. Okay. And the benefits of knowing how to do that are that we're able to put ourselves out in the sun. And the We're tapping into the out. life prolonging, life saving qualities of sunlight. Okay, so to wrap up, I'm just going to list some things, and you tell me if going out in the sun in, improves, improves. Sure, go ahead. Things. Okay, mood. Yes, lack of sunlight is strongly associated with low mood and mental illness. Energy levels. Yes, absolutely. Fatigue is strongly correlated with an indoor lifestyle poor sleep habits, lack of sunlight. Okay. Yeah. Insomnia. 100%. Sleep is a function of your, largely of your light environment. Okay. Uh, preventing heart disease. Yes. Lack of sunlight is strongly associated and really lack of, well, lack of sunlight and then poor sleep is associated with much stronger risk of cardiovascular disease. Okay. Uh, cancer, particularly breast cancer. Uh, Yes. Artificial light at night particularly sets you up for cancer. Poor sleep sets you up for cancer. Both of those are basically the stages set for those. If you don't get any sunlight during the day, what's interesting about the data on this is that the more sun you get, the longer you're going to live and the longer you live, the more likely you are to get cancer. So you'll actually see that the people who live longer because they got the most sun have a higher risk of death from cancer, but that's Mm. not because the sun is causing their cancer that kills them because the sun causes very few lethal cancers I shouldn't say it that way. I should say that very few people die of skin cancer, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And fewer people die. And this, by the way, is another interesting tidbit. Um, At least 25% of melanomas are definitely not caused by the sun because they're on non-sun exposed skin or they're in people who have melanin rich skin that isn't susceptible to the damage that ultraviolet light causes. Another reason why I like to say that if the sun causes skin cancer, then spoons make people fat. Right. And so you would also expect that skin cancer would be very prevalent in Southeast Asia or other places where people spend a lot of time outside right. and certainly don't put on sunscreen. Right. They're adapted they just, to like, it. Just like wear a hat or something. maybe. They're adapted to it. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Let me think of uh, a couple more. How about autoimmune so, disease? 
Yes. Autoimmune, autoimmune disease. disease is strongly associated with uh, living in a colder, darker, nor- more northerly latitude. It's mm-hmm. strongly associated with a lack of sun. Um, and it's strongly associated with artificial light at night. All right. And so if we dig into that a little, we're talking like fibromyalgia, we're talking multiple sclerosis, Hashimoto's, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, Graves disease, lupus, um, autoimmune kidney diseases, which is a whole litany of those, um, autoimmune, I'm sure autoimmune liver disease is in there. I've never actually mm-hmm. seen a study on that though. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, generally speaking across the board, autoimmunity increases as you go away from the equator and people get less sunlight. Interesting. And those are also the conditions that are, that seem to lead people, leave people most frustrated when they're trying to seek treatment. Yes. That there just doesn't seem to be any viable right. um, mainstream options for those. Right. And yet at the same time, most doctors are not suggesting to go outside. Yeah. Because they're not aware of the benefit. Right. And they've okay. only seen the seen the, or heard the dangers hyped. Right. Okay. So to wrap up and we'll end here, I just wanted to swing back to the, to the Swedish study for a minute. And I just wanted to clarify, because I'm just sort of reflecting on what you said there. So are we saying is that study implying that a lack of sun is commensurate with smoking cigarettes in terms of reducing all cause mortality? Exactly the finding in the paper. So what they what they did was they compared people by how much sun they were exposed to, and they did that with a questionnaire, and then they compared that to how much they were smoking. Okay, and the people who get the most sun but also smoke the most, have the same risk of death as the people who don't smoke at all, but avoid the sun the most. So what that means is that, you know, you're a well-educated, high-achieving, high-earning, 30, 40, 50-something-year-old professional. You're indoors 99.9% of the time because to be successful, you've got to stay busy because you're competing with everybody else. Your risk of death is the same as somebody who eats the same as you, as is as educated as you, et cetera, et cetera, but who lives outside or works outside and smokes two packs a day. Wow. I know. It's remarkable. You would think people would know this based on how profound that finding is. It's so profound. And and the and you know, like the thing that gets me is that we're all trying so hard to be healthy and in I that know. quest we have missed something so key <laughs> and obvious. I and mean, the obvious. irony of how in the dark pun intended, most people are about the health benefits of sunlight is truly mind boggling. I mean, I, I, we are so smart as a species. We obviously dominate the surface of the earth unlike any other animal. And yet we're so profoundly stupid <laughs> in some very simple things. We and it's really okay. Are. It's just how we're wired. We're not wired to figure all this stuff out. We're wired to run away from and not get killed or eaten by lions, tigers, bears, anacondas, pythons, barracudas, sharks, et cetera, right? That's what we're wired to avoid. We're wired to avoid dehydration and, you know, death by hypothermia and starvation and and a lack of water, lack of food, all these things, right? That, that's what we're wired to not die from. And we're not wired to understand that the light coming out of you know, a modern incandescent um, bulb is not the same as the light from the sun. And neither of those is the same as the light from a compact fluorescent bulb, uh, let alone a, you know, LED. So. So here we are. Well, thank you so much for explaining all that going over, going over it all. Um, This will be the episode to share with the sun skeptics uh, in your life, everybody. It's really really important. I mean, even if we just added five, 10 minutes a day, it, it could really make a shift in the, our long-term, the long-term effect on our health. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. You can find Dr. Stillman at stillmanmd.com on Instagram 
at stillmanmd and definitely check out dr stillman's free newsletter and there's a paid version as well at stillman.substack.com he sends out a lot of great stuff i love reading it he's very generous sharing his knowledge through that channel so definitely do check out dr stillman's substack at stillmansubstack.com thanks for listening This has been the Quantum Biology Collective Podcast. To find a practitioner who works from this point of view, visit our directory at quantumbiologycollective.org. If you are a practitioner, definitely check out our Applied Quantum Biology Certification to consider as part of your continuing education plan. You can also just jump into our email community. We'd love to hear from you. Again, that's at quantumbiologycollective.org.